Well, we are continuing our series today on the Gospel of John. Last Lord's Day, we finished up chapter 10, and today we're going to begin chapter 11 and consider the first 16 verses. But before we read those verses, I want to do just a quick recap of where we finished off last week. If you recall last week, we found Jerusalem, uh, Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple during the Feast of Dedication. And he was in the colonnade of Solomon and Jews gathered around him and asked, Lord, how long, or how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Then we go on to read that this then led to some Jews to pick up some stones to kill him. And then Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but because of blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Well, we noted last week how controversial this section of Scripture is. There's some who debate whether or not the Jews rightly understood what Jesus was saying. Some people argue that Jesus was not making himself out to be equal with God and that the Jews misunderstood him. And then to add to that, Jesus' response to their accusations seems, at least on the surface, to lend some support to that. And the reason I say that is because in defending himself, Jesus appeals to Psalm 82, where it is said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. And so if Jesus is attempting to argue for his divinity, why would he quote a passage where the titles of gods, or Elohim in the Hebrew, which is the same word used of God the Creator, if that's being used of mere mortal men, why would he appeal to that passage in defending his divinity? And so some people argue Jesus is not defending or arguing for divinity. Well, as I explained last week, I do not believe that is the case at all. While it is true that in Psalm 82, God is referring to mere mortal men as gods, Jesus' point was not to argue that he, he is simply a mere mortal man, but rather he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. One of the premises that Jesus is, is that Jesus is equating himself with the word of God that was sent. Notice he says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. And so the argument goes a little something like this. 
The Bible, which you accept, bestows the title of God's upon those whom God has appointed to a prestigious position and to whom the word of God came. However, those whom God has chosen and set apart as being exceptionally distinguished and has sent into the world are even more deserving of this honorable designation. And so for you to accept the former but take offense to the latter just demonstrates how stubborn and full of unbelief you are. I think that's the point. Now, someone might think at this point, well, wait a second. Wasn't their whole issue with Jesus was that they did not believe that he was sent by the Father? Wasn't that the point of contention to start with? And so you're telling me that the very point, that that very point is now a premise to his argument in defending his divinity? Why would Jesus use this as a premise and use as a premise the very thing that they would not accept? This sounds like a horrible argument. Well, first, we need a little... We need to understand a little something about logic. The validity of an argument does not hinge on whether or not you accept a premise. If I argued, for example, all men are sinners, Enro is a man, therefore Enro is a sinner, that is a perfectly valid, logical argument. There's not a single flaw in it. You may not believe that all men are sinners, but whether you believe that or not does not invalidate the argument. And so what does this tell us about the relationship between logic and faith? What it tells us is that the role of logic is not to produce faith. The role of logic is to systematize truth. It's to structure it, to order it. And as Christians, we are certainly not opposed to that. In fact, it's impossible to be imposed, opposed to that, self-contradictory. But faith is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And no amount of logic is ultimately going to cause faith. Reason works in conjunction with faith, but it doesn't produce it. And so if there is a problem to Jesus' argument here, the problem is not the argument itself. It's perfectly valid. The problem lies within us and within our stubborn hearts. We don't want to accept the premises or the conclusion because we hate God and we love our sin and we rather choose to remain in darkness than to follow him. He said in chapter 10, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You know, there's something else that popped out to me this week. I can thank Carrie for this. We were at Fellowship Mill, and she brought up, she was just talking about Lazarus, Abraham's bosom. You guys remember that story? If not, let me read it to you real quick. It's in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, 
you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm is fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, I beg you, Father, to send him, uh, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know what's fascinating here about what, and I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I got so excited, I couldn't wait. You know, this occurred to me. Here in John chapter 11, a man named Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. And what kind of effect do you think this had on the chief priest? Do you know? Have you read ahead? Were they like, oh, wow, Lazarus, we saw you in the grave for four days, and here you are alive. Tell us all about it. We want to hear everything. Did they believe? Chapter 12 tells us, Now when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The very point, one of the major points Jesus made in that peril, you're seeing it played out right here in real time. Even if he were to come from the grave, from the dead, and share his testimony, you're not going to believe it. Not only that, we're going to put you to death. Why? Because we hate you, Christ. It wasn't enough, and it never will be enough for those who rebelled. And so this raises the question then, what's the point of these arguments? Which then leads me to this. I believe Jesus' argument wasn't so much about providing some rock solid argument that they, could, that they couldn't refute and therefore come to faith. And you know, don't, don't misunderstand, he is making an argument, the lesser the greater, but I think it was more so a rebuke of their unbelief. And I think the allusion to Psalm 82 brings that out. In its entirety, it reads, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Oh, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Notice God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And who are these gods? Men who have failed to do what God called them to do. And thus, like men, they will die. 
And now here is Jesus in the midst of the gods. Verse 23, the Jews gather around him, the temple, and he's telling them they do not believe because they are not among his sheep, which continues that whole great shepherd theme about him being the great shepherd and the hired hands and the thieves and the robbers. In other words, part of the reason I believe Jesus appeals to Psalm 82 is because he's drawing a parallel between those of Psalm 82 who, though called gods, failed in their responsibilities, to now those who are surrounding him in the temple, refusing to believe him, and have failed in their responsibilities. Well, all of this then leads to them wanting to arrest Jesus and eventually kill him, but he escapes from their hands, verse 39. And that then brings us to chapter 11. And here's what we read. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this most blessed holy day. We thank you for this means of grace you provided us in your word. Be with us now as we explore that word. Make us attentive. Give us ears to hear and eyes to behold the truth that is presented to us. That we may embrace you, the word of God sent. And live into your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So, as we just heard, Jesus' confrontation with the Jews in Jerusalem led them to wanting to arrest and kill him. So he, he and his disciples flee Jerusalem and went beyond the Jordan. And while he's out there, there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now John, uh, John identifies this village of Bethany as the village of Mary and Martha. Why does he do that? Well, because there are at least two places called Bethany. There is the Bethany we, re we read about in chapter 1 that is beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And then there is this Bethany, which is the village of Martha and Mary. This village, according to verse 18, is near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now in the Greek, the Greek is actually 15 stadium, which if you convert it, is roughly 1.7 miles. That's why our modern English Bibles say ah, about two miles. So keep that in mind. Jesus has fled Jerusalem because they are wanting to arrest and kill him. 
And now he's about to get word about something from a village that is just outside of Jerusalem. And so this is a dangerous area for him and his disciples. Jesus then goes on to tell us that it was Mary, or excuse me, John goes on to tell us that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, what's interesting here is that we don't even hear about Mary anointing the Lord and wiping his feet until the next chapter. But obviously, by the time John is writing this gospel, that had already taken place and it was well known that this family had a very special connection with Jesus Christ. This is the Martha that liked to cook for Jesus. This is the Mary who liked to sit at Jesus' feet and anoint his feet with expensive ointment. And this is the Lazarus who would recline at Jesus or with Jesus at the table. Again, this is a very special family for Jesus. And John is highlighting that. Well, he goes on then in verse 3 to tell us that the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now notice, they didn't say, Lord, Lazarus is ill. Or Lord, our brother is ill. But rather, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do you see the emphasis John is placing on the love of Christ for this family? Then verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this is the first of some strange stuff that we're going to hear in this story. Why would Jesus say that this illness does not lead to death? I mean, from their perspective at that time, they probably just figured that, well, what Jesus meant was is that he would come and heal him and the illness wouldn't get any worse. So that's probably what he meant. And yet we know from the story that Lazarus does in fact die. So why would Jesus say that this illness would not lead to death when in fact it did? Did he not know that it was going to lead to death? Or is there some other way to understand Jesus' words here? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's keep going. Notice now what is said in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here again, we see the emphasis on love. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. It was her brother whom, whom he, you love who is ill. And now again, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And now we come to verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now we come to the second strange thing in this story. And a rather startling thing at that. Listen to this again. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wait a second. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he delayed in going to them? That's not what you expected to hear, was it? You know, I was thinking about this last year when Amanda was in the hospital. With that scary brain bleed. We were there, what, roughly three weeks and I didn't want to leave. Just didn't want to leave. I think probably in 
like I said, I think it was roughly three weeks. I think I might have left twice, maybe three times. And when I did, I booked it. I, I came home just to take a shower, get some fresh clothes, and I was right back. And even if the phone had rang while I was on the road, you better believe I would have turned around and went, darted straight over there. Wanted to be with her. Here, Jesus gets news that someone he loves, and you can't miss the emphasis here, someone he loves, who is the brother of two women he loves, is seriously ill. And what does Jesus do? Does he do what you expect him to do? Who loves someone? Does he immediately run to Bethany? No. He decides to delay for two days. That's strange, isn't it? But not only does he delay, I want you to see the reason for the delay. Notice the first word in verse 6. It's the word so. The Greek there is un. It's a word that marks a conclusion. You could translate it as therefore or so then. Young's literal says it this way. When therefore he heard that he was ailing, then indeed he remained in the place in which he was two days. In other words, the reason for the delay is because of what is said in verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. So then, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he delayed in going to them for two days. Again, that's exactly the opposite of what you expect to hear. You would expect to hear Jesus loved them, so when he heard that he was ill, he immediately took off for Bethany. That's what love would do, right? In fact, I think that's why John is placing such an emphasis here on love. Because if all you heard was verse 6, that is, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he delayed for two days, you would be tempted to think that Jesus didn't love you. I gotta stop looking at Amanda. <laughs> Get me teared up. You would be tempted to think that Jesus didn't care about these people. But he does love these people. In fact, not only does he love them, he intentionally delays for two days in going to them because he loved them. How in the world do we make sense of that? Well, we're going to be able to make sense of it as we keep going. Verse 7. Then after this, and here I was, you know, Indro said, I want you to preach through John 11 because I'll get emotional because of Dr. T's passing. And here I didn't work in All right. Then after this, that is after two days, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples, as you might expect, given what just happened at the end of chapter 10, then say to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, first, notice the, the concern of the disciples. What was their concern? It was safety, right? Rabbi, we don't want to go back to where they just tried to kill you. That's not safe. And in Jesus' response, notice what becomes the concern for him. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he says, or because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he what? He stumbles because the light is not in him. For Jesus here, the real danger is in stumbling. It's in falling. And who are those who fall? Those who walk at night, those who walk in the darkness. But who are those who don't fall? Those who walk in the day, because they have the light of the world. I believe Jesus' point here is that if you're really concerned about being safe and being out of harm's way, then do what God commands you to do. That's the point. And keep in mind, he's saying this, wanting to go back to Judea, where they've already threatened to kill him multiple times now. Let that sink in for a moment. Yes, I know it's dangerous. In fact, it won't be too much longer after this that they're actually going to kill me. Keep in mind that as we transition, that chapters 11 and 12 transition, everything after 12 for the, to the rest of the gospel is the last week of Jesus' time on earth before he's crucified. Jesus knows it's dangerous. But God has sent a messenger to him via Martha and Mary to head back to Bethany. And it's better and safer to do what God has called you to do than it is to disobey him and walk in darkness. Beloved, we need to really let that sink in for a moment. You know, oftentimes you will hear me pray when leading the service for the Lord to set eternity ever more firmly in our hearts and that by the power of the Spirit that we live more and more in view of the eternal promises that God has set before us in His Word. Why do I ask that? Because we are prone to live in today and for today. We think that this life is all that there is. And so we treasure up things to ourselves in the here and now on this earth. We want this life now to be most comfortable, most safe. And so, hey, if following Jesus is going to cause me trouble, forget about it. If it's going to make things uncomfortable with my son or my daughter, or if it's going to cause tension between my mom or my dad or my brother, forget about it. If it's going to put me on some list, crazy activist watch list, forget about it. I'm not doing it. I want it safe. I want it easy. But beloved, hear Jesus' word here. True safety and protection is not to be measured by earthly standards. Walking in the dark is dangerous. Walking in disobedience to God, in fact, has the most dangerous eternal consequence of all. But if you walk in the light, in his word, you will not stumble. And in the end, you will gain life eternal. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, for though now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Peter would go on to say in chapter 4, starting at verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't walk in the dark. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then lastly, Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to to what he has done. Beloved, it matters not how things right now may look for the wicked. Life may be great, it may be comfortable, it may be easy. Hey, I can do whatever I want, I'm free. Blah, blah, blah. But when the Son of Man cracks that sky open and comes with his mighty angels and flaming fire, all of that comfort and ease and safety and wealth spent in darkness, disobeying God and his word is going to come to a fiery end. And you will spend the rest of eternity in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, my friend, is the unsafe, dangerous path to take. But you walk in the day. Walk in the light. Walk in his word, walk in obedience, and you will not stumble. And in verse 11, John 11, after saying these things, he then said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus spoken of his death, but they thought he meant rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now if you remember earlier in verse 4, when, when Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death, we asked, why would Jesus say that, when in fact it did lead to death, as we now see here in this verse. Did he not know that it would lead to death, or is there some other meaning to this? Well, here in verses 11 through 14 is where we learn that Lazarus did in fact die. Not only that, but Jesus knew that he would die and did die. So whatever he meant by this illness does not lead to death has to take this into consideration. But again, we'll come back to that again in a moment. It's what Jesus says next that once again jolts us. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. In case you're wondering, is that, is that a mistranslation? Well, the Greek word is sero, and it means just that. It means to be glad, to rejoice. So here you have Jesus who hears Lazarus is ill, and when he does, he not only delays in going for two days, but then Lazarus' illness leads to his death, and now here Jesus is saying that I rejoice that I wasn't there to heal him. Again, if all we heard was that Jesus delayed in going, waited until he died, and then when he heard that he had died, rejoiced that he wasn't there to heal him, to keep him from dying, you would not think that Jesus cared at all for Lazarus. But you'd be wrong. Why? Because there was a purpose behind all of this. One of the purposes is right here in verse 15. For your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. And then another purpose, as we just heard in verse 11, is so that he could awaken Lazarus from death. And so when you again start putting all this together, which you then begin to understand now, that what was said back in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 4, when Jesus said this illness does not lead to death, Um, where did my thing go? So when you put all this together, you then begin to understand now what was said back in verse four when Jesus said that this illness does not lead to death. So let's let's tie it in all together. First of all, the meaning behind Jesus saying that Lazarus' illness will not lead to death, even though he knew Lazarus would die, is that death will not have the final say. Oh, Lazarus is going to die. In fact, Jesus intentionally stayed away from Lazarus to let him die so that he could display his power and raise him from the dead. But let us understand, the illness was a means to an end. Even the illness led to a death, which was also a means to an end. But the end goal was not death, but life. That's what Jesus meant when he said this does not lead to death. The end game here. And then secondly, Jesus does this so that God would be glorified 
so that the Son of God would be glorified because he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus and forth so that many of them would come to faith. Now, this story is going to go on to emphasize the doctrine of the resurrection. And Lord willing, we'll get into that in our next sermon. But for today, here's what I really want you to take home with you and give some serious thought to. We learned from Jesus in verses 9 and 10 in his talk about walking in the day that it is better and safer ultimately to do what God has called us to do according to his word than it is to walk in darkness and disobedience to his word. It's better and safer to do that despite how things may appear. Jesus and his disciples returning to an area where folks were ready to kill him. But now take that lesson and combine it with what we've just strung together here at the end. That not only is it better and safer to walk in the light of his word, even when things appear bad, but understand that the bad that often comes into your life is intentionally decreed by God because he loves you and is bringing you to what ultimately matters and is for your good. Now, I don't know about you, but that's extremely encouraging to me. I mean, you think about what Martha, Mary, and Lazarus had to go through. You know, here's Lazarus getting sick, serious enough for them to send word to Jesus, hey, could you please come and help us? And day by day goes by and nothing happens. Lazarus is getting sicker. He eventually dies. And Jesus doesn't even show up until four days after he's been in the grave. Do you think Martha may have been questioning some things? Mary? And what about poor old Lazarus? What kind of doubts and questions do you think were going on in his, in his head while he's on death row here, knocking at death's door? Where's Jesus? Hey, you told him I was sick, right? Where is he? And then the worst possible thing happen, happens, he dies. It could certainly appear to them that Jesus did not care. And again, I think why this is why John emphasized love a number of times, because he knew that's exactly where our minds would go upon hearing Jesus intentionally delaying for two days and rejoicing that he didn't go any sooner. That's where we tend to go in our thoughts. You know, two days ago, I got a message on Facebook from a friend that said, hey, you know, someone that we knew back in our hyper-predators days, he's now an atheist. I said, Where, where'd you get that from? So he sent me a link to an atheist Facebook group where he's making these comments. And as I was scrolling through the posts and the memes, there was a common theme that I saw over and over again from the atheists. Well, if God exists, then why does this happen? If God exists, why does that happen? If God exists, why doesn't he intervene and fix this or fix that? You saw that over and over and over again from these folks. And so either there is no God, or if there is, we don't want to know him because he obviously doesn't care about us. Imagine being at Lazarus' bedside. You're watching him get sick. You watch Mary and Martha get desperate and reach out to Jesus. And then hour after hour goes by, day after day, and you get nothing. You might even think to yourself, 
he's God, right? Can't he just say the word? He doesn't even have to be here. And yet nothing happens. And that doubt, that unbelief, starts to creep in your mind even more and more as you watch Lazarus getting worse and worse and then finally breathe his last. And Jesus is nowhere to be seen. Is it reasonable to think that way? No, my friend, it's not. In fact, it's ignorance and it's foolishness. Why? Because in ruling out God and ruling out providence, you're basically insisting that there simply cannot be any other explanation for what is going on other than what you think ultimately is going on based on your extremely limited and or faulty perception. In logic, we call that the fallacy of induction. You want to talk about being unreasonable, the atheists are being unreasonable. Beloved, what we learn from this text today is that there is something much deeper going on behind the scenes for those who love God, for those whom God loves. We know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And beloved, when Paul says all, he means all. If you go down to verse 35, what does he include? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God conveys to us that his thoughts and his ways are distinct from ours. He emphasizes that his ways are higher and his thoughts surpass our own. Reflecting on this, we can echo the words of Paul in Romans 11.33, acknowledging the profound depth and richness of God's wisdom and knowledge. His judgments are beyond our comprehension, and his ways are beyond our ability to fully understand. Beloved, there may be instances when you find yourself seeking God's assistance in desperate times, and it seems that he's not responding times of sickness, times of financial problems, times of relational problems, persecution, distress, hunger, danger, and yes, even death. I mean, does it get any worse than death in this life? There may be moments when your heart is heavy with sorrow and you long for God's intervention and yet it appears that he remains silent. Learn from this text today that during such moments, it is crucial for you not to perceive God's delays as outright denials. Instead, interpret them as indications of his love for you. And yes, that is challenging. <laughs> but persevere in the belief that God knows precisely what is best for you.
And consequently, consequently, his delay is not meant to harm you, but to help you. Beloved, there are means to an end. Do not fall for the trap of getting so focused on the means that you fail to trust God and the purpose for which he is working in your life. Let's pray.